I shouldn't have said it. No, that's all. It's in my head in rotation. Yeah. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bonehead. Today's special guest star is... Bart Mixon. Bart Mixon is who? He is a makeup effects artist. And he's going to be talking about such films as Robocop, Ernest Scared Stupid, It, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. This man has worked on everything, including Marvel films, that we're going to get in on the second part. This will be the first part. He's one of our favorite guests that we've ever had on. He's a fascinating Very guy. Fascinating. think you're going to love it. You may notice that James isn't on the couch with us. He will be during the show. Why isn't James on the couch with us? <laughs> can't say it. You can say it. He's got gangrene in a certain area that we shall not mention. You said Wang. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> James Thomas has gang, 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 gang. <laughs> James Thomas has gangrene of the Wang. I mean, it's okay. He already has two kids, so he doesn't really need to procreate anymore. Ooh, ooh, look, there's my foot, Carrie Birchfield. <laughs> Yeah, to talk sexy inside... to that pencil sharpener. That's <laughs> Enjoy the show. His penis has never been sharper. Bye. This is Bart Mixon. Welcome to Bonehead. How are you doing today, sir? We have Bart Mixon. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you guys? We're doing well. We're doing well. Makeup effects extraordinaire. I Bart know. Mixon. Bart Mixon. <laughs> We're going to talk about so many movies. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you so much for uh, waiting on us to get through all of this. <laughs> That we're not going to bore our audience with. We were just sitting here before we started filming, admiring all your art and posters in the background. Cool. Is uh, this your office? Uh, yeah, I, I guess we could call it that. My comic book room, my office, my whatever man cave, whatever, whatever see, you want to call it. Yes. We call where we're at right now the dork hole. Yeah. There you go. If you could <laughs> see, a, if you could see around, it's about 360 of one sheet theatrical movie posters several of them ones you've worked on sir. yes there's a robocop if i could row right over here to my right so to get started i'd like to just get in the beginning where did you grow up how did you get into the business i grew up in houston texas right <clears throat> i was born in uh, september 6 1958 um i've always been a comic book uh movie fan um I think King Kong is one of the first movies I can remember seeing. I was probably four or five. Uh, the good one, the original one. Um, that made quite an impression. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts, you know, a lot of the Harry House and stuff. Um, I remember uh, Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe is probably the first movie I remember watching and realizing that this is a, an actor, you know, playing multiple characters. I right. think uh, Look Magazine did a feature on it, Look or Life had a, I remember when I was in Sunday school and they had, um, you know, the magazine and it had Tony Randall and all the makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that definitely made an impression. Um, Planet of the Apes in 68, uh, obviously kind of pushed me a little further in that direction. Um, and then reading about Rick Baker and Famous Monsters in 1970. Yeah. Um, and made it seem more obtainable because Rick was, he was born in the 1950s, so he's eight years older than I am. So here was like a long-haired kid, you know, doing stuff that I thought was as good or better than like the pros. Like I think Schlock is a much better, sculpturally, just a much better ape than anything in the Planet of the Apes movies. No offense to Chambers and all those guys. Um, so that just, I was like, wow, if a kid can do this, you know, maybe I've got a chance. But the problem was that I lived in, L uh, in Houston and the film industry was in LA. So I had that hurdle to overcome, but. But anyway, that's no, it's a funny story. John, uh, John Landis said the same thing. He went to John Chambers to uh, to have the suit made. And he's like, well, I can't afford that on the budget. And then, you know, Rick Baker ended up building it. So that's fascinating. Right. So what spurred you leaving Houston to go to L.A.? Um, well, how did you make I, the trip? I mean, you, do you understand what I mean? Who Did you do it with a friend? Yeah. Did you just I'm leaving? That's uh, it. I've got fifty dollars in my pocket. A friend of mine used to tell me that I was never going to leave Bedford Falls because I would I would keep trying to, you know, work on stuff. I was trying, you know, I I met Rick Baker at a convention in uh, 1977. Uh, it was the same one that Steve Johnson and Matthew Mungle met him at. It was a Houston uh, convention, Spectrum Con. A friend of mine, John Fishner, 
put it on and he would invite like Jim Danforth one year, or Greg Jean, and this year he invited Rick. Rick had just done Star Wars. Right. So I corresponded, stayed in touch with him, corresponded with him. Um, I had another friend, Ernie Freno, who lived in Dallas, who uh, moved out to LA, um, early 80s, worked for New World. Um, he later on, he was like the effects supervisor on the, the Terminator and he uh, did the Dune miniseries. Uh, took Earth to the Moon, that Tom Hanks thing. He, he did visual yeah. effects supervisor and all those. So, I mean, I was networking as knowing people. It's who you know. That's the big story. It's who you know. Um, but I was slowly building up credits on uh, local productions. Um, there was a show called Terror Theater, kind of like, you know, the Houston version of Spinguli or something that, you know, would run like the the old horror movies. And my brother and I went down with like a script and some of our Super 8 movies and said, hey, you know, you need a, a better opening than the crap you've got. <laughs> and, you know, we shot a little something with some zombies and we made like a miniature haunted house that they chroma keyed, you know, matted them into. And that was like 1977 or 78. Um, but just slowly getting, you know, working on local stuff. Fred Olin Ray lived in Florida at the time and I tracked him down. So I did some stuff for him, uh, Halloween Planet and uh, a few other things while he lived in Florida. And then when he moved to LA, like scalps and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. too. Um, where am I going with this? Anyway, um, in probably the big thing in, in 81, uh, right before I got married, uh, um, uh, my friend Ernie was working at New World and I guess I'd send him some um, samples of stuff. <clears throat> so I got a call from either him or someone on John Beekler's team. Mm -hmm. They needed some extra help for like a week on a Forbidden World, which was right. his you know, horrible new world show. <laughs> uh, so I, I went out there for a week. Uh, you know, I, I lost money. I, I forget by the time I flew myself out, I was getting 50 bucks a day. So I made like $250 for the week, but I had a friend going to college out there. So I was able to stay with him. Um, you know, I, I rented a car. I worked there at the lumber yard in uh, wherever the hell in Venice, uh, yeah. uh, for new world. Um, but I met, um, you know, I met John Beekler. Uh, more importantly, I met Mark Schostrom, who we stayed in touch and we uh -huh. worked together uh, a couple of years, you know, over the next few years. Um, so, anyway, so at least that was my first Hollywood movie. Um, but I had to go, still had to go back home because I was living in Texas. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I uh, visited Rick Baker um, as I was leaving, like the day before I had to fly home. I went by, he was doing Videodrome. And so he's like, oh, you know, too bad you're going home. You know, I could use some extra help, you know. And I was like, oh, sure. Because Rick, Rick's got a, uh, a sense of humor like that. He, he's, he likes to kind of yeah. know, screw with you. So I just assumed he was kidding because he knew I was going home to get married. Um, so when I got back from the honeymoon and I uh, either got a call or a letter from Mark Showstrom, and he's like, hey, I'm working for Rick Baker on Videodrome. So I'm like, you know, shit, I guess Rick wasn't kidding. Um, <laughs> I think I made the right choice. I'm happy I got married. Good. <laughs> um, but I continued living in Houston and um, I would work like Mark Showstrom did a show in New Mexico in 83 and I went out and worked for him on that um, in 1984 he did the supernatural so I uh, drove out to LA and assisted him on that for several months um, right before that show started he was supposed to do another show called Neon Maniacs and for various reasons that fell through but um, so I was in LA for a couple of weeks with nothing to do while I was waiting for the Supernaturals to start up. So my brother had already moved out there and was working for Ernie on the Terminator. So I did some animation, a lot of ink and paint and a little bit of uh, actual animation with the laser battles for the first Terminator. Yeah. Um, in 85, I did um, <clears throat> Elm Street 2 with Showstrom. And then finally in 86, I, I used to do technical illustration for an oil tool company in Houston. And I quit that job and did uh, Chainsaw Massacre 2 and then RoboCop, which we're shooting in Austin and Dallas. And then after that, in early 87, I moved out to LA. So that's the that's the short answer for how I- uh, Do you have a quick no, question? I'm waiting for, I, I figured you were gonna go into it, so go for it. Well, no, I, before I go into it, I, I and this is probably the only, we're the only show I'm gonna ask about this because it's, it's funny because we're we I'm, I consider myself a failed filmmaker and we've made several short films together. And oddly enough, this podcast is probably the most successful thing we've ever done, which is sad on a whole other <laughs> level. But that being said, 
You, it sounds like you had a professional job. The three of us have professional jobs, and there's sometimes things that come up that is hard for us to do because we're married with kids and all that stuff, too. So would you just leave that professional job for a while and go work on it, take vacation? Do you, I'm, I'm just curious about the logistics of how you work that out. Right. Uh, my... I pretty much was the graphics department uh, for, it was a, it's a small, it was a small company. Right. Um, but my supervisor, they would give me leaves of absence. I'd say like, Hey, you know, things are kind of slow. I'm all caught up with, you know, whatever. Could I take, you know, three months off and, you know, and they're like, Oh, sure. Why not? You know, so <laughs> it, it worked for them because they didn't have to pay me. Right. And, but there was, um, after we did uh, Elm street two, um, you know, we're sitting there, it hasn't come out because I mean, we literally just finished shooting it. And then uh, From Beyond was was coming up. Right. And uh, so I was like, you know, hey, Mark, you know, we just did Elm Street, you know, what what better calling card, you know, because at least it's a big, you know, everybody would know what that was. So I was like, we ought to, you know, call about From Beyond, you know, the new Brian used uh, mm -hmm. Stuart Gordon movie. And for whatever reason, Mark's like, eh, if you want to call, go ahead. <clears throat> so, you know, he goes, I, I'm not going to, he's like, I'm not going to do it. But he goes, if you want to do it. So I picked up the phone and called. I said, you know, we did, you know, explain who we were, what we'd done. They said, you know, they'd like to meet with us. So I don't know why he didn't, uh, I probably shouldn't tell this story. Anyway, uh, anyway oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I went to the first meeting by myself. I'm not sure why Mark didn't go. Um, but uh, so they loved our stuff. I brought Mark in on the second meeting. Um, along with a lot of the props and stuff that we built, you know, for the Jesse transformation, they love that. And so everything was falling into place for that one. And then, yeah, then like, I, uh, the, this company that I worked for in Houston, they're kind of like, uh, well, what's going on? Aren't you, uh, are you coming back? Are you, yeah. <laughs> you know, still work here. And then, um, I, I think my wife too was kind of like, Oh, you've been gone long enough. It's, you know, <laughs> so I had, unfortunately I had to, I had to pull out of, uh, from beyond. So I had to call oh. you, know, you Gordon and uh which I mean at the time it you know it hurt but I probably wouldn't have done RoboCop and whatever uh, you know it's it's the old what's that story the nail or you know if not for a nail you know yeah like, this and this could have happened but I think I can clearly point to like well this and this wouldn't have happened yeah so I'm, I'm happy with the way stuff turned out you know I'm still married uh so you know uh, <laughs> So that was a, that was an important thing. So yeah, it, uh, but at the time, yeah, it kind of, you know, it was like, oh, crap, you know, cause it was like, we were on a roll, you know, but, um, and then, so like, as Mark got like evil dead and stuff like that, I was like, Oh, I can't go work on that either. Um, but you know, again, a year later I'm doing chainsaw two and then RoboCop. So I, I, yeah, I can understand because you're sitting there talking about Showstrom. And by the way, if you if you talk to him, tell him uh, the Boneheads would love to talk to him. He has told us no more than once <laughs> <laughs> about coming on the show. <laughs> he said he doesn't talk about the old movies anymore. No. <laughs> I love talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, everybody's, you know, whatever. It's unfortunate. I, I, it's okay. We um, that are a screening of Planet of the Apes a couple of years ago and he and I met down in Hollywood, the, the Egyptian to see that. And uh, we keep missing each other. We keep trying to like have lunch. There's a third friend, Gregory Punchatz that worked with us on Elm Street 2 and he worked, I got him on RoboCop and Ernest Scared Stupid and stuff like that. And um, so Greg's out here now. So we keep trying to get the three of us together for lunch, but you know, I'm out of town or Greg's too busy or, you know, Mark can't make it or whatever. So it's just uh, logistically it's, you know, I understand. And, and I, and I wasn't, and, and it, God bless him. He did some great work. We'd love to have him on the show. It's just funny. You keep bringing it up because my, it was leading into, I can't believe you didn't work on evil dead too. It was shot in North Carolina, correct? Uh, well, I believe, yeah. yeah I believe it was. So I was, you were talking about working with him and I was like, I know he ran the special effects. So that's going to lead into what was it like being on set on Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two? How high was Dennis Hopper? Uh, how crazy was Toby Hooper? Just any good story you have, we'd love to hear. We love Chainsaw. We love good canon stories. We've had several people on the show that have worked with canon films more than once and always have some great stories about talking about uh, yeah. Uh, Gollin and Globus, Menachem. Right, right. Uh, I don't think I ever met those guys. Thankfully, I um, <laughs> uh, backing up a little. I, you know, I'd, I'd been corresponding with Savini for a couple of years since since before the show. I remember sending him a package of you know my work uh, when he was 
before he was crewing up for Creepshow. Yeah. And, uh, and he was like, oh, you know, it's too soon um, for me to hire anybody, but you're definitely in there. So I'm like, hey, great. So then I was like, well, I'll just, you know, kind of wait for him. I don't want to bother him. So a few months go by and I never hear back. So then I, you know, called him back and he's like, oh, no, I've already got my crew. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, um, so similarly, when Chainsaw, I heard Chainsaw was coming to Austin. I'm living in Houston, so that's only a couple miles away. Um, thankfully, my brother lived in L.A. by then. He moved out to L.A. And uh, I've got a twin brother, Brett, who uh-huh. right. you know, he doesn't work in the biz so much anymore. But for about 20 years, he was over at Fantasy 2 doing animation effects like Coppola's Dracula and the first right. two Terminators and, you know, lightning and laser beams and title sequences and that sort of thing. So Brett had moved out in 82. So he knew um, a bunch of guys like John Vulich and um, Sean McEnroe and those guys that were on Savini's crew for Chainsaw 2. So I kept, I was trying, you know, calling Tom, like, you know, trying to, you know, see if he needed extra help or whatever and wasn't really getting anywhere. And Vulich finally told Brett to tell me, he's like, you know, if Tom's never going to hire you like over the phone, you just need to drive to Austin (laughs) <laughs> and just meet him face to face and then he'll hire you so i was like all right so that week a weekend i drove to austin met with him. he's like all right start monday <laughs> so uh, so then i drove back to houston i quit my job i was at that lines the yeah. oil tool company so i just kind of went in they were in the middle of um absorbing the company into their parent company so i, I knew i wasn't going to have a job there much longer anyway because guys were coming in going like uh eh, you know if you're not around uh where's the file for the whatever and i'm like oh okay this doesn't sound like i'm gonna i'm gonna be here to show you so (laughs) so anyway um you know i forget i just kind of i packed my stuff and just drove in that morning and just said hey i quit and then drove to austin and and started on it so um it was great i mean at the time it was um i mean you know savini was savini so he that was cool i mean you know i was a fan of uh like creep show had been out by then and you know mm-hmm. he was you know the king of splatter and all that stuff he would walk around with his deal memo <clears throat> in his pocket and whip it out uh unprovoked and show us how much money he was making which i'm not <laughs> really sure uh, we have um, all met tom savini several times and we're we're fans it's a good thing we're a fan of the work i can see that happening <laughs> do you understand what i'm saying and I mean, I was making like, I was getting like 500 a week and I, I was like the lower paid guy. Um, I remember one time Bulich was telling uh, Tom, Tom was, you know, whatever, riding him about something. And, and Bulich is like, Tom, you're making more in a week than I'm making on this whole show. So just get off, you know, get off my back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, um, but, uh, but I mean, but he was, um, I thought he was a good boss in terms of, um, I mean, he, you know, he had, a great crew. I mean, John Bullich was great. Mitch Devane, you know, Sean McEnroe was one of Rick Baker's guys. So they had um, dealt out or divided up all the work before I got there. So, you know, Sean had Chop Top and uh, Mitch had, you know, Leatherface and the um, the Hitchhiker Puppet and Bullich had Grandpa and Gino Crognali was doing the skinned, uh, I forget what his name was, the guy that gets, you know, the uh, Stretch's friend that gets killed and skinned. Oh, what is his name? Um, I don't remember either. Yeah, anyway, yeah, definitely. Uh, but um, so I was I was doing a lot of lab work, um, running foam, um, and uh, there there was one bit that I did get to sculpt. There's going to be a parking garage sequence where the Saw family kills a bunch of uh, like uh, UT students, yeah, or, like a drunken college students. I guess some of it's still in there, but specifically, they had a scene where a guy got his hand cut off. And um, then the hand was going to be, you know, twitching on the ground and like flip them off or something. And so um, they brought in a real amputee, which I didn't think was a good idea, um, <laughs> who had recently lost his, his hand. So I, you know, I'm taking the mold of his stump and I'm like, you know, are you going to be, you know, cool with this? And he's like, are you kidding? This chainsaw massacre too. This is going to be great. You know, and <laughs> so, um, so I make a prosthetic, you know, severed piece to go in a stump. And then um, I think it was John Bulich was going to play the hand laying on the ground. So I did a corresponding piece, you know, because it was the hand up through the fake set. And, you know, we had the, the corresponding severed piece to go on that. So that's the only thing I sculpt for the movie. So on the day they're going to shoot it, um, I think Bulich applied it to the guy. And, you know, they get it on and they get the blood on it. The guy's like, ah, too soon. And he just got up and left and just like, you know, and they're like, 
where did he go? And you look outside and he's just, you know, like a car, you know, Benny Hill or something, just going down the road, you know. <laughs> so the guy, the guy didn't want to do it, you know. So they had to, um, I think some of it may still be in there, but basically the, the one thing that I did for the movie, I'm like, thanks a lot, buddy, you know. Um, they got, pretty much got cut out. So uh, otherwise I was working, I helped Sean apply um, Chop Top sometimes. Um, I did, uh, I worked the set a lot. Um, Leatherface, I would do his lips and eye coloring. Yeah. His lips had, uh, there was a material called Elvisite, Elvis which was a plastic acetone-based uh, material, kind of like scar plastic. You could build up um, wounds and stuff with it. So all the ulcers and stuff on his lips and the cracked lips, I would, I would build up every day with that. Um, so a lot of set work. Um, there's the guy who, in the radio station where he gets uh, attacked by Chop Top, yeah. and he's got like hammer marks on him. Yeah. Um, that was something Toby just, you know, said, hey, you know, we need some abrasions on him. So I just had my oversight, you know, put them on there. So um, so it was just lots of little stuff, mainly, you know, set work and, and all that. Um, you're asking how high Dennis Hopper was. <laughs> well, um, it, it's it's really, uh, it's one of those movies that you hear stories about later, about the set and things. And I, I just, anybody that was around it, I'm sure has at least one good experience. My, my two main memories of him. I mean, he seemed like a cool enough guy, but uh, he, I believe he turned 50 on the show. I remember they had a birthday cake for him and they had like a little miniature chainsaw that he was cutting the cake with, but it was like spitting oil. So the cakes just got oil all over it. So everybody's just like, yeah, that's okay. You know, happy birthday, but no thanks. But, but um, my, I remember um, I was in the, uh, the straight makeup trailer where he was getting made up. I don't know if we were sharing it or because most of the time we did, our more involved makeups, we had a workspace there near the stage that uh, we would apply like Chop Top or the grandpa makeup or whatever, and then just drive them over. In fact, we were driving Chop Top to set one day and he, Mosley wanted to get some smoke. So we pulled off at a, you know, like a truck stop and he goes in to, you know, get some cigarettes and the guy wouldn't make eye contact with him. He's just like, oh, is there anything else? We need? So, <laughs> I thought it was real, you know, so we're like, oh, okay, this is great, you know. But um, so anyway, we're in the, in the tra I'm in the trailer prepping or whatever, and uh, uh, Hopper sits down, and the I forget the straight makeup artist, but she's doing his makeup. So she's like, you know, gets the sponge with the foundation on it, and she's like going to, you know, put it on his face, and he like recoils back. He's like, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "Well, I'm doing your makeup." And he's like, "Oh, okay." So then she kind of loads it up again and comes at him, and he's like what are you doing every time she'd come at him he'd flinch and he was that high so um, <laughs> yeah go ahead james I, i've got to ask one question going back to the amputee story right right when he fled did he take the prosthetic with him as far as i know i mean i wasn't uh, vulich was applying it and um and i think i was like outside like kind of coming in hey how's it going and the guy like you know goes past me and so yeah it wasn't like i don't think it was like oh please take this off i can't do it i think he just like physically you know just got up and you know out of there <laughs> uh, which which means somewhere on ebay right now is that prosthetic right <laughs> well it um who knows he did to get it off of there you know but uh i'm and plus that was 1986 so oh, yeah. unfortunately doesn't last very long um, so I'm sure it's, it's all rotted to hell, um, <laughs> but he's uh, got a good story if he can talk about it. No, it is. Uh, so one of our favorite movies of all time, all three of us is RoboCop and I've read so much about it and it's another one of those sets. Uh, Paul Verhoeven, I'm a huge fan of Verhoeven. I'm a huge fan of just listening to the man on documentaries. Um, he's just so, so insane. So yes. uh, I've read many times it was a very troubled set, right? Lots of different things. I've read people thought that there was really no one in charge and that this was going to be a horrible movie. And, and what it turned out to be was really one of the best films of the 80s. Oh, yeah. No, it, it and The Thing are probably the two. And oh, I, I purposely agree. Both of those over Blade Runner. Um, but, yeah, no, I thought it was great. Um, to watch for fun, to watch just to sit down and enjoy, I prefer both of those over Blade Runner as well. Yes. Right, right. There we go. My son loves Blade Runner, but that's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate Blade Runner, but does anybody ever sit down for Blade Runner for entertainment? 
I, Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's a beautiful film. I mean, Doug Trumbull's, you know, effects. And, right. Uh, you know, it's, you know, Mike Westmore's makeup effects and everything. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a great film. It's just, you know. Right. Give me thing or, yeah, give me RoboCop. So. I totally oh, agree. 100%. <laughs> but anyway, talk about how did you get on the RoboCop and talk about your experiences, please. Um, well, let's see. Where to begin? Um Again, I, I met uh, Rick Baker in 77. Um, I used to go out, I'm backing way up. I used to, uh, even though I lived in Houston, I'd go to LA in 78, 79, and 80, just to visit like Rick and uh -huh. uh, Tom Berman and Dave Allen, whoever, Greg Jean, whoever would let me come by. So I think it was on the trip in 78, uh, Rick gave us Rob's phone number um, and said, oh, you know, you ought to go, you know, go see rob so I, I i met rob on that occasion uh -huh. um i think he had just done rob Bodine. yeah um i he had just done humanoids from the deep um but he hadn't started the howling yet because i remember later calling him and they were like sculpting werewolves and stuff so i kept in touch with him but not to the extent that i did with rick baker or, or like mark showstrom because i was actually working with mark but um anyway so now it's summer of uh, 86 I had been done with um, Chainsaw for, uh, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I, I know I was home from Chainsaw. It's a Saturday night at midnight. I'm like uh, watching Saturday Night Live and I, the phone rings. And I'm like, who the hell's calling me at you know midnight on a Saturday? Hey, it's Rob, I'm in Dallas, I'm doing RoboCop. You wanna come up and work on it? I'm like, yep. <laughs> so I went up there Sunday and had a meeting and started Monday. Yeah. Um, so again, it's I, I'd known him. So he, um, they brought most of the team from LA, like uh, Stefan Dupuy and um, Margaret Prentice was out there for the first week, and she did like uh, Beetlejuice and she did Ron Perlman for Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. and I, I worked with her a lot on um, over the years. Uh, she used to be Rob's main painter, uh, like she painted everything on the thing, and she like the paint designs for Legend and all this stuff. So um, she came out the first week and did all of the uh, ER stuff where Murphy's coming off the helicopter and, and going through the hospital. And I don't know if the plan was for her to be on for the whole show or if it was just for her to do that first week and then be replaced. Um, but she was also, um, I guess you won't mind me saying, she, I mean, she was pregnant at the time mm -hmm. and Dallas in the summer is hotter than hell and mm -hmm. you know so I, I think it was just you know just very uh, uncomfortable for her you know to, to be there anyway so I, I don't know if that had anything I'd heard that was part of why she left but it may or may not but anyway basically she was there the first week Stefan needed a um uh, someone to help him with the uh just suiting up Peter and uh with when we got into the prosthetics so Rob was like hey I know this guy in Houston you know so um it was pretty much you know, happened that quickly, <laughs> you know, that, uh, so I, initially I was on, uh, we weren't into the prosthetic stuff yet. So I was helping, you know, suit up Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember after the suit was <clears throat> a little tricky to put him in it. There's, there's been stories like, Oh, the first time they dressed him, it took 10 hours, which isn't, it's kind of true, but it's not. Cause when I came on, we were shooting him in the cage, uh, yeah at the police headquarters. Um, I'm sure the first day they put him in the suit because they, they took his life cast and stuff and then they built the entire suit without having Peter accessible for any uh, fittings or anything like that. Right. So I'm sure the first time he saw the suit in Dallas, it probably did take 10 hours, but that was because it was a test fitting and they were like, oh, okay, you know, the arms are too tight. All right, we got to split the arm and add a, a gusset, you know, like an, an mm -hmm. inch wide piece of, you know, foam to widen the arms. All the armpits need to be, you know. So I think with all the modifications that they did, it took 10 hours. Uh, when I got there, again, they'd been shooting for a few days. You know, it was certainly an hour, no more than an hour to get him in it. It was probably closer to a half hour. Right. Um, I remember the first time I helped suit him up, and then Peter was like, oh, I don't think this Bart guy is going to work out. He doesn't seem to be getting it. I'm like, hey, come on. It's my first time. You know, uh -huh. by the end of the week, I was the only guy he wanted putting him in the suit because as he put it, I was the only guy that had the upper body strength to, to you know, muscle him into the suit. Right. <laughs> um, but um, so let's see, there was, again, there was Stefan, there was me, there was Dennis Pollock, who was a, uh, 
uh, Rob's like shop representative. There was a Margie McMahon who was from uh, Chris Wayless's shop, who Stefan had come from Chris Wayless on like the fly. He had just done the fly. Uh, and then this friend of mine, Gregor Punchatz, who had I'd gotten on um, Elm Street 2 with Mark. He lived in Dallas. So um, when we needed some extra help beyond that, then uh, I brought Greg, you know, suggested Greg. So he, he joined our crew. So I think that was the bulk of us. Then we had Todd Trotter, who was uh, Robo's personal assistant. So he would go get him water or if there was a cute girl, you know, visiting the set, he'd go find out, you know, <laughs> what was going on there. <laughs> but uh, oh, anyway, we, we had a, a, well, should I? Yes. Uh, our little humorous limerick, limerick was Texas Todd Trotter, Robo's Poon Spotter. <laughs> so, so he would go find the girls for anyway, I, thank you so much just for that <laughs> you will go down in history for that by the way uh chris wayless also turned us down anything, i'm not saying anything happened i'm just you know anyway um but it was great i mean it was um you know i mean i was what what year was that that was 86 so i was 20 or probably turned 28. I was a big Nancy Allen fan, so it was great meeting her. Yeah, I'd never seen any of Paul Verhoeven's stuff, uh, so I didn't know what I was in store for with him. But yeah, he he liked to scream. Uh, he he was quite a character. Um, I'm trying to think any specific. Uh, there was um, we're doing the the nightclub scene where Peter goes down the the stairs to arrest. Um, I forget one of the guy from Twin Peaks that's. Uh, that's dancing in the club. Oh, uh, Ray Wise. Ray Wise, the great character yeah. actor, Ray Wise. Yeah. So, um, you know, out of all the movies that we could have listed, the first thing that came to my mouth, my, my mind was Swamp Thing. Don't ask me why. Yeah. <laughs> Ray Wise is in that. Yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to forget that one, and I'm sure he is too. <laughs> um, but, um, so we were shooting a scene where he's walking down the stairs, and he's, the visor on the helmet is smoked, so it's, it's, hard to see in any way and so in a dark club it's even you know more limited vision and uh peter was apprehensive about going down the stairs so i guess he was looking down a lot instead of so he didn't have the chin up the stoic you know robocop profile that paul was used to um so i remember uh so he, when he would look down the, the back of the neck would would gap open you know the neck and under the jaw it was if he held his head right, it was all parallel. But if he's looking down in the back of it's, you know, hinged open. So Paul was like, you know, what's, what's wrong with the neck? And I'm like, well, he's looking down. It's, you know, he goes, well, is this a new piece? Is there something different? You know, he's trying to blame the prosthetic. And I'm like, no, it's just, he's looking, he's looking at the ground. Um, and at some point he specifically asked me if it was a new piece. And in my mind, that meant a different piece as opposed to it, it was a fresh piece because we would rotate them but right. it wasn't it wasn't a different piece right and at some point you know i'm like no no it's the same piece it's the same piece and at some point peter mentioned that it was a fresh one and then paul's like oh so it is the piece you're telling me it's not the piece when it's clearly the piece you're making me sound like i'm a madman and he's like just screaming at me and rob was sitting in a director's chair like maybe 10 feet behind me and I like look over like, you know, help. And Rob's just like pointing and laughing and you know, <laughs> laughing his ass off, you know, didn't get up, you know, didn't, you know, I'm like, oh, thanks. So, you know, um, so that was one of the few times he visited set. And it's like, oh, I'm glad you were there to, to see me get yelled at. Um, <laughs> him, and, him and Verhoeven butted heads a lot, but I think ultimately it was to the betterment of the film. And they did two other movies, at least what, uh, um, Total, Total, Recall. Total Recall and, uh, and basic instinct so um you know they they obviously maybe it was i don't know if it was a love hate thing or whatever but it whatever it was it worked um and i mean i robocop's my favorite of those three and i think that's yeah some of the best stuff rob's done um and then when we you know i also i helped with the uh prosthetic face you know when we got into the the melting a meal i applied yeah the uh, left side of him and um when Robo takes his helmet off, I applied the left side and Stefan applied the right side of that. Um, so it was, it was great. It was a, you know, I, I think I was the only one on the crew that thought, I don't recall it being a troubled show or anything, but I do recall everybody just being like, what, what, what the hell is this Robocop? This is, you know, this is silly. And I'm like, no, it's going to be cool. It's he's part man. He's part machine. 
And then they had a rough cut of the uh, Coke Lab sequence, yeah. Yeah. which um, we were invited to go see. But for some reason, I was the only one on uh, Rob's crew that went to see it. And it was just awful. It was it's not what's in the movie. Yeah, right. All, you know, after we watched it, he's like, well, I've got what I need to, to make it work. And but I remember just leaving that screening, just thinking like, "Oh, you guys are right. This thing is gonna suck," you know. <laughs> so that didn't uh, that didn't instill me with, you know. But it was still, it was, it was a great show. It obviously it turned out great. Um, it, you know, it's one of the favorite, one of my favorite experiences, working on a movie, and it's also uh, it's certainly one of the better films, you know, that I've worked on. So, so out of curiosity, I want to go back to the, I want to go back to sure. the, the very very beginning. Because you, right. you just said, somebody said, hey, do you want to do RoboCop? You said, yep, sure, let's go. Was it just, was it literally just the name, hey, we're doing a movie called RoboCop? And I said, I'm in. No, it was, um, I mean, Rob Bottine, I'd known, this yeah. was 86, I'd known Rob since 78. So, I mean, it was, Rob called me. And um, so, I mean, he'd already done The Howling and The Thing right. and uh, Legend. Was Legend out by, yeah, I think Legend yeah. was even yeah, out. Yeah, Legend was out by then. Yeah, so, I mean, I was... Um, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a fan okay. of Rob's work. And also I was, I just quit my regular job in Houston. Chainsaw was over. So I was like, you know, I needed another job. So, uh, you know, I was like, you know, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the way yeah. that I, I just thought it was like, oh yeah, a movie about a cop who's also a robot. I'm in. <laughs> there was a, um, uh, the producer of RoboCop, uh, John Davison, his wife, uh, is an animator. So I think her name's like Sally Kirkshank. Uh, she did um, in the Twilight Zone movie where they're watching, I think it was in Joe Dante's segment yeah, yeah, where the yeah. kids watching the weird cartoons. She had a, a character, like a duck character, Quasi at the Quacadero. And um, anyway, so she did that Twilight Zone animation. But I remember getting before I started working on Robocop, or maybe around the same time, but I, I found an animation magazine that um, had an article on her. And it just mentioned her husband was a producer and that he had a movie coming out called Rowboat Cop. So like about a, like a cop who rows a boat. So they, <laughs> you know, they probably did it over the phone and they just said Robocop and they said, oh, Rowboat Cop. Okay. Right. So I, I always wanted to see that movie. Um, <laughs> say, let's get that movie made. Let's yeah. make that film. Okay, uh, this, is this is next one's an odd question and we'll get back to the movies. It's really not that odd. I, do you are you still in contact with Rob Bottin? Because what I feel is a lot of people aren't in contact with Rob anymore. That he's not really out and about as much. Uh, I, I am not. At, uh, I only worked for him that one time. We did reshoots in '87 yeah. for Robo, and I went by his shop then. And I remember speaking to him a couple of times after that. And then, um, oh, probably about the time I was working on Gremlins Two was about probably the last time I actually spoke to him. Um, and then, yeah, he's, um, kind of disappeared. Uh, yeah. I think it, as I understand, I think it's voluntarily. Yeah. Um, I think he got tired of just the biz and, um, rumor is that he's uh, invested heavily in real estate and is, you know, living comfortably off that. I don't know if it's true. I wish I could remember where I heard <laughs> that initially. Um, but, um, anyway, but he's, yeah, out in, uh, I guess he's still in uh, Azusa or El Monte or whatever the East Valley. Um, and I, I do know Margaret uh, Prentice, I work with frequently and her husband was a high school buddy of Rob's. Yeah. So she, she is still in the loop, but um, the few times I've like, Hey Margaret, what do you hear from Rob? And she's like, I don't want to talk about <laughs> Like, I'm tired of people asking me about Rob, so I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually, I almost didn't ask you because we're here to talk about you, but it's just one of those, it's kind of become a Hollywood legend of, you know, hey, nobody is in contact with maybe one of the greatest special effects people yeah. of the 80s, right? The, I mean, he, he gave us the thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's a shame. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I miss him as an artist. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's we like when Rick well. Baker retired and everybody's like, oh, why did he do that? And it was like, because he can, um, right. you know, you know, for whatever reason, I think I got the impression that Rob just felt like, all right, my, my time's up, you know, with this. And, and maybe it became just too big a pain in the ass that it wasn't worth it anymore. I mean, the industry did change when, you know, in the eighties, late seventies and the eighties, like the makeup effects guy was, 
for lack of a better word, they were kind of the rock star and the yeah. productions would come to them and go like, hey, you're yeah. the expert. So you tell us, you know, right. what this is going to be or how to do it, you know. And then now it's um, it's more of a, they shop it around. Like when we I worked on Cat in the Hat, uh, Rick Baker started it and then he uh, had some differences with uh, Mike Myers, I believe. And so he, he parted company and the production just took Rick's designs and took them to Kevin Yeager, ADI and Steve Johnson and just said, you know, do a test makeup based on this and we'll pick the one we like the best and you know, you'll get the job. And it ended up being Steve and I ended up uh, heading that show up for him. But, but nowadays it's like they'll spend um, a lot of their pre-production and a lot of their money getting a cool design and then they don't have the money uh, in some cases to, to realize it um, right. or, you know, or, or, and again, they will bring these designs to a shop and just say, you know, here, we want you to make this. And it's like, well, okay, but anybody could have done that. I mean, before you could look at like a Rick Baker makeup or a Dick Smith makeup or a Greg Cannon makeup or a Tom Berman makeup, you know, you could see the, the hand of the artist, you know, you could tell that they did that, you know, and, and now a lot of the stuff is so, homogenous because it's probably the same designer and uh it's probably the same crew because the the crews the, the shops can't really afford to keep the same guys on so like you know the guy working on bright sculpting orcs might be the guy that's sculpting you know part of the little dead girl and the ring you know or whatever i mean it's yeah. there's a lot of cross pollination and stuff so you know it just doesn't a lot of times it doesn't seem like there's you know, any one signature look like there used to be, unless you get something like Darkest Hour or like Kazu that did that, you know, yeah. Gary Oldman's makeup. I mean, Kazu's yeah. very, uh, you know, he's just great. And uh, so, you know, sometimes you can be like, wow, that's just so amazing. That had to be, you know, whoever, but, uh, right. but anyway, so it's, it's a, it's different. So it might've been, that might've been part of the two where Rob was just like, oh, you know what? Goodbye. Hey, and I'll yeah. end it. I'll end that whole conversation about both of them here. What does Rob Botine and Rick Baker have to prove now? Yeah, right. Right. I mean, what 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 do what do they need to prove? So let's keep go back to your career. Which one do you want to jump to? Because I, there's no way we're going to get through all of them. Which one do you want to jump to? Oh man. Well, I think we'd be we'd be. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk okay. about it, and then uh, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a bunch. I mean, we want to talk. I would like to talk about. Is it the Kyoto Brothers for Killer Clowns, right? Right. I, I wasn't on that very much, although I did. Ernest Scared Stupid was with the Kyotos. Yeah. I actually, oh. speaking of Ernest Scared Stupid, you go from Robocop a few years later to Ernest Scared Stupid. And a little bit of background about me why Ernest Scared Stupid stands out to me was as a child, I was the biggest coward. <laughs> And my parents knew, don't let he him see... He still is. That's close. It's close to being true still. My parents were like, don't let him see any horror films. Don't let... I loved science fiction, but if it crossed into horror, I didn't sleep at night. But for right. some reason, my mother decided, oh, Ernest. It's an Ernest movie. It'll be perfectly fine. How did you end up working on Ernest Scared Stupid? And do you have any stories about that movie? Um. Well, let's see. Uh, I mean... I was the uh, Kyoto Brothers shop foreman for uh, on and off over around two years. I mean, I moved out to LA in 87. I worked uh, during the day for Rick on Gorillas in the Mist. I think uh -huh. within two weeks after I moved out here, I was at Rick's during the day. And then I was moonlighting at the Kyoto's on Killer Clowns. Um, so I met him on that. Um, the only thing I did on Clowns was uh, the big Clownzilla uh, character. That was Charlie Kyoto in a clown suit. But yeah. for the the close-up hand that's holding the guy, I sculpted the skins and ran and applied the skins. They had built a hand and that was padded like an armature, a mechanical armature. And then I, I did the cosmetic, you know, skinning on that. So that was only a couple of weeks. Um, but anyway, um, they were buddies with uh, Gene Warren at Fantasy 2, who I did like Fright Night 2 for and, and It. And I think it was right after, was it after It? Yeah, I, it's, it should be right after it. I think yeah. so. Mm -hmm. um, I know things were slowing down. Fantasy 2 is mainly a visual effects company. Uh, they wanted to be able to offer creature effects if the show required it. So like a, a show like it or a show mm -hmm. like Fright Night did, but most of what they did didn't. 
at some point I went over and did a, um, started working for them. There was a show called Visitors from the Unknown. It was a, um, a UFO abduction uh, docudrama that Penelope Spears, who did Wayne's World, mm-hmm. she directed it like a year or so before Wayne's World. So my first thing I did for them, the Kyotos were doing Critters 3 and 4, and then I put together a crew and we made these alien characters, you know, like gray aliens on, like we had little girls wearing those. And then there was a, a hybrid alien that was like a six foot tall guy. Um, but then as we were doing that, um, then Ernest, they were bidding on Ernest. So um, some of my crew, <clears throat> I remember, um, you know, I was like, hey, you know, you guys don't go anywhere because, you know, we got another show coming in. I go, I can't tell you what it is, but I, I can tell you it's a sequel and it's a genre movie. So they're thinking it's like the next Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, <laughs> or something like that. And then when, when I finally got, we, when we could finally reveal what it was, I'm like, it's Ernest Scared Stupid. And they're just like, uh, okay. Uh, so they, were, they were less than thrilled. I thought it was cool. It was fun. I mean, I, you know, Jim Varney was a, you know, he was he had done all those local commercials mm-hmm. i grew up in houston so we had all those i'm sure the same commercials you guys had uh, you know in your neck of the woods um well he's from, he's, from, he's from this area so. he's from yeah. lexington actually yeah and we shot it in um was it nashville yeah or yeah or was it memphis uh god that was 1990 so or 92 I, uh, maybe it was memphis anyway we, we shot it in uh in you know in, in that area as well um, but we, we built it at the, the Kyoto's. I mean, Charlie Kyoto uh, designed everything. Uh, Jim Cagle was our main sculptor. Um, <clears throat> we had guys like Andy Clement and uh, Dan Platt and uh, Aaron Sims and Jim McLaughlin were on our crew. Aaron Sims is like probably the premier creature designer these days. Aaron Sims creative, uh, like he did the new Pennywise designs, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the new It and just uh, anything, uh, you know, chances are he designed it um but uh some of the we did so we did trantor um and then we did a, a bunch of background trolls some of those are uh, killer clown heads like uh, the basic head that we put like new noses or, or ears or different teeth on some of them were original sculpts but we um again with a couple of them we we uh took molds off of them and then to where we could mold generic like noses and ears and, and build do like a Mr. Potato Head kind of a mix and match <laughs> yeah. thing and make so if you look at a, again like on my Instagram there's a group photo of me with all the the uh troll heads and, and when you look through there you can be like okay like oh that that one's a girl and that one's a guy but they're the same you know or they cut the top of his head off and you know reconfigured it or whatever so um but it was um um i don't know what i wasn't on set that much we we got trantor built and we uh charlie kyoto and me and our mechanic um was it guy himber and then uh we went to tennessee uh to shoot uh to start shooting and uh, i brought gregor uh, punch hats in from dallas on that as well and at some point it was just decided that there was too much still going on in the shop in terms of getting all the secondary trolls together. So I, I decided to go back to LA that I was, I, I felt I would be a better use there. So Charlie, Greg, and um, those guys stayed on set. So I don't have a lot of set stories. Um, yeah. the, the one thing I do remember the short time, I, I think they shot the prologue while I was there. And I remember um, the director was John Cherry, who I guess had done all the- um, Most all of them, part- yeah. Ernest and he did he did all the movies as well uh, his friends called him Buster so uh, you can you can figure that one out Buster Cherry anyway uh, <laughs> that's, the kind of, that's the kind of show it was but um, again the, the, thank you for just that <laughs> if you if you had seen our other shows or a lot of them you would know that you can keep on doing those jokes and you can just oh, make them sure. worse <laughs> our fans yeah. will love it there you go um, the one main thing I do remember, cause this was, again, this was like 91, 92, maybe, um, I'd never seen video playback on a show before. And this was the first show that, um, and I guess maybe because of the commercial, their aspect of it. But I remember, uh, the director had like a little handheld monitor and, um, they would do a take and then he would hang, hang on a second and he would rewind it. And, okay. Yeah, we got it. Let's move on. And I'm like, wow <laughs> it's like why don't they have that in hollywood and then shortly thereafter i mean everybody was doing you know video playback and uh-huh. video assist and all that but that was the first time i could remember seeing it you know on a show so i was just like wow this so it's just funny that you know you think 
that kind of stuff would have been all over LA before it had made its way out to the rest of the country. But there you go. So Ernest was a, a trendsetter, a, a pioneer. And so but it was a great, uh, I thought it was a fun show. I've actually, when I was working on Bad Grandpa, I was in uh, Ohio, like at a, the hotel, had like a convenience store in the, you know, I'm buying gum or whatever and the, the girl behind the counter, I'm wearing an Ernest Scared Stupid t-shirt and she's like, oh, I love, you know, Ernest Scared Stupid. She called him Ernie, Ernie Scared Stupid. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's Ernest. <laughs> but um, so yeah, he's got his fans. So um, I wish, uh, wish they could have done, I wish they would have done more genre um, related ones. Um, but, um, you know, Right. I, I, uh, we we have a we have a listener to the show who is a proud owner of every single Ernest movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, and it wants us to do a whole, whole episode, episode on Ernest. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, before we start taping this, we had um, <clears throat> mentioned um, I've got the Mixon Memories Museum and outside of Houston. Yeah. Right. I've got uh, I've got a, a, one of the heads from uh, Ernest, the um, which a collector had contacted me. Because he's like, oh, I hear you got some stuff from Ernest. And I go, yeah, I've got, uh, at the end of the movie, when he, when Trantor blows up, um, we made a rigid foam head that they packed with primer cord and, and blew it up, you know. So we made three of them. So we'd have, you know, for three takes. And so we blew two of them up. So the third one, we didn't. So I, I kept it. And, you know, my dad's got it now at, at, in Houston. But I remember this collector, I hope it wasn't one of you guys, but no. um, he's <laughs> uh, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I'm looking for screen used stuff. And I go, well, I got, you know, I explained what it was. And I go, you know, I go, obviously it's not screen used because the screen used ones are in a million pieces. And he's like, well, you know, if it's not screen used, I couldn't offer you top dollar for it. And I go, well, first of all, it's not for sale. It's like, and either you don't understand or you're just trying to screw me over on the price, but it's, you know, if it were screen used, it would be literally a pile of crumbs right and we were going back and forth on these semantics and stuff and i finally was just like look it's not for sale leave me alone <laughs> you know <laughs> it's as close to screen used as you're going to get because the other ones were vaporized <laughs> so, you want to go to it uh, yeah you're the fan you're the <laughs> there's an earnest thing Okay. So, all right, let's backtrack a year and let's talk about it. We have to talk about it. It's on your chest, for God's sake. And let me tell you that I want to get this off my chest. Yes. I love the fact that you worked on it and Fright Night too, because I'm a Tommy Lee Wallace fan, and Tommy Lee Wallace is from Kentucky, like Carpenter. John Carpenter oh, cool. is also from Kentucky. I, I knew they went back. I didn't know they went that far back. Yeah, uh, yeah. I also did. Uh, well, I did. Well, four shows for Tommy. We did Fright Night 2, we did It, uh, we did Danger Island, which I think is also called The Presence on videotape. It had Gary Graham. It was basically Lost, you know, 10 years before Lost. It's a plane load of people that on a deserted island and weird crap happening. And I, it's like, gee, what was J.J. Abrams watching, you know, right. when, he wrote, <laughs> when he wrote Lost? And then he did a thing called The And the Sea Will Tell, um, and we did like a severed head for that. Um, but... Um, so what do you want? What, what do you want to know about it? <laughs> I, everything. I, how did you get the job working? What stories do you have working with Tim Curry? I mean, it, it really is one of those things. And I think, um, so we're all, I'm 40, you're 30. I'll be 38 000. next month. 38. Yeah. Ballpark the same. And, and James is 52. Yeah. But at yeah. The same, it was one of those things we watched right at those times where it could just, it melt, melted our brains. Well, and you know, when it came on ABC for the miniseries. And you know, our producer Haley, she's 25 and she loves it. I mean, it's well, one of her favorite movies. Old one or the new one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she loves the old one and we uh, both, we actually, I enjoyed the new one too, but. Yeah, it was fun. I, I, I appreciate, um, I'm a little envious of the new one because I mean ours was a three-hour miniseries. Yes, right. You know, over, over two nights. I mean it was in a four-hour time slot, but it's right. about three hours of content. <clears throat> you know, the first movie was um, the first the, that just came out. That was probably two hours and fifteen minutes. By the time they do part two, they're going to have like a four and a half hour venue to do what we had to do in three hours. Plus, we were saddled with 1990s network television censorship versus you know hard r i mean right. i thought they did a good job with the new one and i was a little envious you yeah because you were trying to you were trying to do it. a scary tv uh, movie in the age of full house and family matters so on the same network uh, on the full, same network yeah that's but, full house 
But you know the 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 thing about that is though, I mean, I think the the amount of people who have phobias of clowns have went up dramatically, and I think so many people bring up it, specifically uh, you. your version of it. Well, cool. Thank you. I'm glad to have been able to contribute to that. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, how did I get it? Uh, basically, I mean, I've done <clears throat> Fright Night two for fantasy two and that was a tommy lee wallace show so when tommy and uh the working relationship gene warren jr was the the head of the of fantasy two and he had me set up the creature shop for him so the whole working relationship between gene and i and tommy worked out uh, well enough on uh fright night that when um when uh, it came along you know tommy came back to, to fantasy two and you know, then Gene, you know, approached me with it. Um, I don't remember, because Tommy doesn't remember this, so maybe Tommy, maybe it wasn't strictly Tommy that brought it to Fantasy 2, because I, I can remember the first time uh, uh, Gene Warren and his partner, Leslie Huntley, you know, ran the company, and I remember um, when they gave me the script to read, it was like a six-hour miniseries. Yeah. So it was like a three-part, you know, thing, which I wish I'd kept I thought I kept that draft and it's probably sitting in my file somewhere, but I have no idea where I've looked for it and I can't find it. So can I stop you one second and ask for a clarification on that? It was, uh, was it Lawrence Cohen who wrote the original draft of that? And then Tommy came in and rewrote it. Is that, am, am I remembering that right? That sounds right. I know, um, the ones that we shot with were, were definitely Tommy had done yeah, the rewrite on. Right. And it's been so long. I mean, I didn't, it was 1990s so i don't recall I'm sorry and i didn't look it up sorry but i think it was lawrence cohen who did that and they share a screenwriting credit right, on it right. yeah i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure cohen had done the uh the six hour it was the same writer and i believe it was cohen yeah yeah um but i was gonna say i do remember um because uh, i was familiar with the books my brother was a big stephen king fan he would like get first edition you know hardbacks and yeah, all yeah. stuff so he had told me a little bit about it in terms of what I knew what Pennywise was. I knew about the shape shifting and sensing your fears and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I remember asking Leslie who was going to play Pennywise. And at that time she said it was either going to be uh, Roddy McDowell, Malcolm McDowell, or, or Tim Curry were the, so I, people have mentioned that to Tommy. There's this uh, it documentary um, Pennywise, the story of it that's coming out from dead mouse. I think they asked Tommy about that and he was like, oh, I don't remember that. So maybe this was all going on before. Maybe by the time Tommy came on board, uh, Tim Curry was all, always it. And we never did any, um, I never did designs for anybody else. I was, I started doing, you know, clown designs and I was kind of like, well, until you guys cast him, it's kind of pointless. Cause I mean, like the three of you, if I would, what I would design, you know, for one of you is not going to work on the others. You're right, just, right. You want to use a, particularly with a makeup like that, you want to use as much of the actor's features in the design. I didn't want to just, you know, put a big thick rubber head on, on the whole thing. Um, my original, dis I, well, so once we settled on Tim, um, we brought him into the shop. We took a live cast, you know, we took reference photos. Um, I started doing, you know, I got a headshot from the production. I started doing some design sketches uh, over his headshot. Um, once we did the live cast and we got a, uh, a plaster positive um i made i guess i've gotten some feedback from tommy at this point so i made three copies of tim's head and did what we call clay sketches where you just do like a quick uh you know rough clay sculpt and i guess i'd taken the three favorite designs and um rough those in mm -hmm. and then I, I sealed them and painted them and we took photos and then i sent those to tommy and then he selected the one that the final makeup was based on um and then i re-sculpted that uh to be a makeup which i'd use a different kind of clay and you had to, there's just a whole different process where you can break it down into the, to the various pieces for it to be molded into prosthetics um, right. the original design he had a, a headpiece he had the nose but he also had cheekbones and a chin it was supposed to look like uh or not look like but just be suggestive of the lon cheney phantom of the opera oh, okay. um, that's that's why he's got like the upturned nose right, that's why right. he's got the balding head with the hair you know where it's at and all that um we once we produced the makeup we went up to canada and did a film test um they weren't sure if they wanted to use the cheeks and the chin so we did uh, on that day we did two versions 
the first one, we just did the nose and the headpiece, and uh, Tim Curry had some thoughts on what he wanted the, uh, the patterning on the face to look like. Um, and again, there's pictures of all this on my Instagram, so mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys want to pull those at some point to use to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. But um, so the initial test was, um, was just the head and the nose, and again, Tim's thoughts on the paint. And then um, I added the cheeks and the chin, and uh, my original paint scheme, I wanted like like big blue, like uh, around the eyes to kind of suggest like eye sockets of a skull. There was the pattern on the lower mouth was going to come up, not all the way to the eyes like the new one, but it definitely was upturned um, to kind of suggest like a, the hollows of a skull, but without being blatant, you know, about it. Um, it was kind of a quick turnaround, so I didn't have time to quite do, do it exactly the way I wanted, but... Um, they filmed it and then they decided uh, to use just the uh, the lighter prosthetics and, and as much of Tim as they could, which in hindsight, I think was the right choice. Um, uh, we did one more makeup test where we locked in the paint scheme. So there's a photo around somewhere of Tim without the headpiece on. It's just him with the nose with a white face and with the uh, like the blue triangles and, and whatnot. Um, so uh, it basically it was just like two you know we had the one test and then we kind of refined it and then we were ready to shoot um okay. so it was pretty you know pretty straightforward i mean uh, i did do a lot of, i generated a lot of 2d artwork and then again i did the three clay sketches but i only refined one of them into a makeup um now the when he gets the battery acid in the face um at the time that i sculpted that makeup i thought we were going to use the cheeks and the chin so when he pulls his hands away, he does have a little bit more exaggerated cheekbone and, and chin because it was meant yeah. to echo that look. And by the time uh, it was decided we weren't going to use those pieces, I didn't have time to re-sculpt it. In fact, when we did the whole principal photography, we didn't shoot the um, battery acid look at all. And they were tempted to not even use it. They were just going to, you know, have him react, jump down the hole, and it was all going to be just the regular clown look. But uh, thankfully, Tim had, you know, um, I'd brought the pieces up to Canada in case we got around to using it, but I guess we just ran out of time. So we shot it as an insert at Fantasy 2, you know, a few months later. But Tim had said, like, oh, you know, Bart did such a beautiful job with these pieces. It'd be a shame not to use them. So if we can shoot it all in one day, you know, that he agreed to, to go through the heavier makeup. So I'm very grateful to him for doing that because otherwise we wouldn't have this because right. i mean they were and it's the, such a great scene and that television i mean because at the time there wasn't anything like that on television that right. makeup right. effect yeah no i i i would hate to think what how that whole thing would have played out without that mm. but but as to show you as uh how much we weren't going to use it i mean we, we there's a when he goes down the hole there's a stop motion puppet that like an 18 inch uh stop motion penny yeah. wise that as it goes in the hole, it, uh, it had a mechanism in it that would elongate it because they wanted him to get longer and like, like taffy, like he's, you know, stretching as he goes down the hole. Right. So a friend of mine, uh, Dan Platts did the likeness. He's a real good likeness sculptor. And um, he made it, he sculpted it to look like the regular Pennywise because at that time we weren't going to use my disfigured makeup. And then literally the day I was molding the front half, I got the front half of the, the sculpture for the stop motion puppet in plaster and it's drying. And then they come back and say, Hey, we're going to use your, your disfigured makeup. So I'm like, yay. But now, so then I had to take a life cast off of my, off this little 18 inch Pennywise and do a new press, do a new facial prosthetic to, to replicate the, um, you know, the battery acid look. So, <laughs> but, uh, but it came super close yet and not being used. And again, I would hate to think like, you know, without this guy, look at that. Who, yeah. who couldn't have that face? Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was um, it was a close call. Um, I don't know if there's any. Well, I is there anything else I can tell you about the? No, no, <laughs> about and it it sounds like it was a very traditional shoot. Didn't nothing huge, nothing big, not a lot of blow ups, right? Just kind of a another show. Um, the uh, we I guess I had like four weeks of pre production before we started shooting it. And then we shot over an eight week period. So I was building in Burbank, we were shooting in Vancouver. So at least 
once a week I would fly back and forth either for a production meeting or for filming. Mm -hmm. So that was a little, um, that got a little old. Uh, I did one 40 hour day uh, on the show where I, you know, went into the shop, worked, you know, went in at like seven o'clock in the morning, worked all day, um, caught a, like a midnight flight, flew up to Vancouver. The plane was late. By the time I got to my hotel, I had to get up in an hour to go to work, to do the makeup. So then we shot all day. And then by the time I, you know, got him cleaned up and got back to my hotel, I think it was right at like a 40 hour, yeah. it was almost two hours to two days straight. So that was, that was a little taxing. Um, but it, for the most part, I mean, it, you know, I would just go up with whatever, um, you know, like if the werewolf was working, I'd take that up that week. Uh, and it was always, it was usually it was either Pennywise by himself or it'd be Pennywise plus like the werewolf or Pennywise plus, you know, the stands head in the fridge. Um, the customs, Canadian customs would usually go through the stuff and I'd be like, oh, you know, it's wigs and it's makeup for a movie. Um, the one time I had the box with Stan's head in it, then they're like, oh, we don't need to look at it. And I'm like, oh, really? You don't want to? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, no, that's okay. And I'm like, oh, crap. The one time I got something cool in here to, you know, <laughs> it was a nice, you know, severed head. Um, but uh, I remember Seth Green being very uh, interested in the monsters and the makeup stuff. Anytime, you know, he knew that whenever he saw me, that it was, you know, to be like, oh, let me see the werewolf or, you know, oh, Al Marsh is, you know, working today. What's that going to look like? You know, so he was, um, I mean, the other kids were cool, but they were, you know, just kids. But he, he was, you know, he was like a, you could tell even then that he was like a real fan of the genre, you know, horror and stuff. So that was cool. It was good to see him go on to become what he has, you know, between Robot Chicken and yeah. Family Guy and Austin Powers, you know, it's just every time you turn around, that guy's doing something. So, so that was cool. That was, yeah. So he was a nice guy. Right. That was our first part of Bart Mixon. Tune in next week for second part where we're going to talk about Marvel and several other different films. Fascinating stories. Cool yeah. story about Seth Green right there towards the end. So thank you so much and tune in. And um, one one uh, order of business. First, thank you, Blake Best, for uh, introducing us to Bart and getting this set up. Yeah. Let me get this set up. Uh, make sure you are subscribing to YouTube or iTunes or SoundCloud. We And leave comments and rank us. We really need those those comments and ranks and subscriptions. Also follow Mixtron and Blake Best on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They're fascinating guys. And Kickstarter.com and look up Behind the Screams and donate to their Kickstarter. We did. Bitches. James still has getting green at the wedding, right? <laughs> yes. Drip, 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 drip. drip. Drip, drip. <laughs> I didn't know where to block a molly. <laughs> <laughs>